So I had, I had my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In Jesus' wonderful name. I think this is the fourth or fifth time I've been with you in the last two or three years, and I know that <clears throat> I know that I've talked to you before about Joseph. We're going to talk to you about Joseph again. We're going to have different emphases, especially in the area of application, which we haven't done before. The first 11 books of the Bible, excuse me, the first 11 chapters of the Bible are mainly about events. Doesn't mean that there are no personalities. There are personalities, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Enoch. But mainly, Genesis 1 through 11 is about events, creation, the first marriage, the fall, you can know that you're starting to think theologically when you hear the phrase, the fall, and you don't think about a season. You think about a spiritual tragedy that took place in Genesis 3, which affects all of us. Uh, the first murder, the, uh, the flood, uh, the, the translation of Enoch and, and, and the flood, and the... Um, moral tragedy between Noah and Ham when, he, when Noah got drunk after he exited from the flood. Uh, and then the Tower of Babel judgment, Genesis 11. Now, from Genesis 12, uh, from Genesis 12 to, to 50, the Bible is mainly about personalities. It doesn't mean that there are no events, but those chapters are mainly about People. As a matter of fact, I would even say this, from Genesis 12 for the rest of the Bible to Revelation 22, the whole Bible is about one man's family. That man is Abram, who was renamed Abraham. Now you say, well, what about all these Gentiles? Well, according to Galatians 3, Gentiles who believe in great Abraham's greater son... Jesus of Nazareth, are grafted into the root, which is basically Abraham and Abraham's faith. We become spiritual children of Abraham, which is actually a greater advantage than being a physical child of Abraham. Now, fully one quarter of the book of Genesis is about Abraham's um, great-grandson, Joseph. We call this the Joseph cycle, Genesis 37 through 50. And I want to say, um, without qualification, poor Chester has heard me teach on Joseph three or four times. Chester, I'm going to talk about some different things about Joseph this time. Don't despair. He made it through Vietnam. He can make it through this. So um, I want to say that the story of Joseph is the greatest story in the history of the world. You say, you mean the greatest biblical story. No, I mean the greatest story. You mean the greatest story that has to do with, with theology or God. No, 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 no. I mean the greatest story, period, all categories. You say, well, what about the story of Jesus? Well, that's precisely why I make the claim, because the story of Joseph is the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. The parallels are astonishing. One author actually wrote a book and claimed that there were 50, I think he stretched a few points, but that there are 50 parallels between the career of Joseph 
and the career of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to range over the Joseph cycle, Genesis 37. We're not going to go all the way to 50. We're only going to go to, to 45. But um, let me just pray once more. Father, we thank you that you've not left us uninstructed, but that you've given us a perfect record of who you are, what you've done, and what we are to believe and what we're to do. We thank you that you've not left us untutored, but you've sent a resident tutor, the, Lord Je- uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, to live in our hearts and to illumine the words in our experience and understanding which he inspired among the biblical writers, through the biblical writers such a long time ago. And so we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would do his illumining work that we might understand, but we also pray that he would do his transforming work, that our wills would be arrested and made available to your bidding. For we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name and for his sake. Amen. Man, let me just say one thing by word of testimony. Um, when I came to Memphis for the first time in 1994, I gave the testimony that I always gave, namely that I came to Christ as a child, wandered from Christ during my teen years, came back to the Lord at age 20, summer before my senior year at Georgia. And um, after a few years, that narrative was not working for me anymore. And I began to realize, no, you didn't come back to the Lord at age 20. You came to the Lord for the first time at age 20. And the reason I thought I was saved when I was a child is because I, I, checked, I checked off on all the things you're supposed to believe when you're a Christian. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe that he was the Son of God. But certain sins became, became more vivid in my memory sins of those years. I'm not just talking about the normal sins that we associate with the 60s, because I was born in 1950, so my 10 years exactly parallel the 60s. But other sins, which I won't mention unless I lose credibility. But one, one thing that I realized was that I had no um, resolve. No, I had, I had no resistance to sin before I sinned. I had no regret about sin after I sinned. And I had no resolve against future sin. And as I thought about it, I thought a born-again person cannot have that mindset, cannot have that relationship with sin. And, and at age, by age 20, I was radically changed. I can't even think, I'm starting to tear up right now. I can't even think about my sins without weeping. So... It's possible in this many people, it's, it's, I would even say it's mathematically probable, that there could be someone with false assurance in the room. And uh, be sure that you not only intellectually affirm the doctrinal claims of the Christian faith, but you're conscious of a transformed heart and that you know that you, you're casting all your hope on the blood that flowed from the cross to cleanse you from your sin. And, and the resurrection, Jesus' bodily exit from the tomb on the third day to give you uh, eternal life and a new life and that you're conscious of that. If you're not conscious of that, get with one of these men, get with one of your pastors and, and, and nail it down because the only day we have to get it right is today because 
Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow doesn't get here. By the time tomorrow gets here, it'll be today. So the day, today is the only day. You know, when you get to the end of Matthew 7, it's one of the scariest passages in the Bible because Jesus said, many will say to me in that day. So there are many in this category. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So that's two things. Many people who call Jesus Lord, and they'll say, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? When you read what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these are people who actually had dynamic ministries. But he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, that doesn't scare us a little bit. We're not paying attention. So we need to get it right. We need to lock it down and to be sure. The first way that Joseph was like Jesus is that he was the beloved of his father. And he was rejected by his brothers. Now, isn't that true about the Lord Jesus Christ? The Jews are still rejecting Jesus today. John talks about this in John 1. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Um, you know, this is a tremendous mystery, and we would ask ourselves the question, well, if the Jews are the chosen people, how on earth could they reject the chosen one that God sent? Here's an amazing irony. If the Jews had received Jesus, he could not have been the true Messiah. You know why? Because his rejection was foretold. The rejection was foretold in the prophets and in the Psalms. Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. And if you read Isaiah 53, and if you read Zechariah 12, 10, and if you read Psalm 22, you'll see that the rejected son was not only rejected, he was pierced. As a matter of fact, it says in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Also, the Sanhedrin who rejected Jesus in the first century and said that he should be crucified, this is the chief priest and the other rulers who were threatened by Jesus' influence over the people, um, they certified that a second century pretender was the Messiah. A man uh, called uh, Simeon uh, ben Kochbar. Well, we know that he wasn't the Messiah. So I think we could legitimately infer that if the Sanhedrin uh, embraced somebody who definitely was not the Messiah in the second century, it's probable that the one they rejected in the first century uh, could have been the Messiah. And of course, we believe that, that he was the Messiah. But Joseph, like Jesus, was rejected by his brothers. Now, um, there were three reasons that the brothers hated him. We're only told two, but we could, we could uh, infer a third, and that is that he actually told his father what his brothers were doing with the flocks. And so we could say, well, he snitched, or he was a tattletale, or he told on them. It's, it's actually one of the first things that we that we read about Joseph. Basically, though, he just told the truth. I would guess that his father asked him for a report, and instead of dodging it or say, you know, I, I can't answer that question, Father, he just told his father what, what his father asked him. That's Genesis 37.2. And then it says that the, his father loved Joseph more than all his children. Now, I have three children, and I have seven grandchildren. I can say... Honestly, I love all of them equally, but that's not always true. I remember my college roommate's father telling me 
that he loved my roommate more than his other two sons. And I thought, ah, you probably shouldn't say that even if you think it. Well, Jacob couldn't hide it. Um, and as a matter of fact, he gave Joseph a special garment that he didn't give the other boys, which was really stupid because that, that called their attention to the fact that he was his father's favorite. And, you know, people wore the same clothes every day back then. So every day they were reminded, this is the one that our father loves more than, than he loves us. And so um, then to compound the unpopularity, you know he had two dreams. And in the dreams, he was exalted over his brothers in two different ways. Now, um, there are some very, very fine Bible teachers who say that Joseph was arrogant and boastful to share the content of those dreams. Uh, there are people who write books who say that, and I would say that they're wrong. Joseph did not originate the message. Joseph said what the message was. There was no Bible back then. This was God's Word mediated through dreams. And I, and I would say that we have a similar message which is also unpopular, would make us unpopular, and also very unwelcome. And that is that unless our unbelieving friends receive the gift that we've received, one day we'll be up high and they'll be down low. That's what Joseph taught. Now, we did not originate that message. And even though we're reluctant, we are responsible to share that message. That's what missions is. That's what evangelism is. That's one of the reasons the church exists. That's one thing we can do on earth that we can't do in heaven, which is share the gospel. But the gospel is not welcome to an unbeliever. That's why we have to fish for men. If you go fish, you know, let me tell you a deep insight. Uh, fish don't want to be caught. That's why you have to catch them. If they wanted to be caught, you wouldn't have to catch them. So when Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men, I hope you get it. They're going to resist. They're going to evade. They're going to try to get away. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to catch them. That's, that's the whole point. So Joseph shared this very, very unwelcome message. Now, you know that his father um, sent him to look after his brothers. Ironically, when he came to seek the safety and the well-being of his brothers, they wanted to kill him. That's the, that's the exact pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took this commission from his father to come to Israel to seek the safety and the welfare of God's people, and they killed him. And in Joseph's experience, they were going to kill him. They threw him into a dry pit with no water. He came out alive. This also is, is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he was thrown into a pit, into the grave, but he came out alive. And then they lied about him being dead. Um, the priests who got the first-hand report from the guards, they knew he wasn't dead, but they told lies. And the brothers went back to Jacob and said he's dead, but they knew that he wasn't dead. At least he wasn't dead when they, when, when they sold him. A perfect pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know the story about coming into Potiphar's house, this royal official in the um, ruling dynasty of Egypt, and he, he had a, um, he, Joseph was a slave, made a slave in his household. He rose to the top among all the other servants. Um, Potiphar had an immoral, um, seductive wife 
who tried to seduce Joseph when he resisted. She lied about him, accused him of being a rapist. I think I did mention this to you before when I talked about Joseph, but I'm going to mention it once again. Um, chastity is a very rare thing, especially among men. Uh, the sexual drive among men is, is, um, is dominant. It's a, it's a very, very hard thing to resist, an, available, uh, an, uh, an attractive, available woman. It's amazing the Christian leaders who succumb to that temptation. But chastity brings its own reward. Purity brings its own reward. The greatest reward is to have pleased God in that area and to know that we were obedient. Maybe some of us are obedient by default because, you know, some of us are so attractive, maybe we can't uh, attract an attractive woman. But uh, if a man is determined enough, he can, def he can find a woman. And, um, but think of the reward on a wedding night to be able to say to a spouse, whether a, f a woman saying this to her husband, or a husband saying this to his wife, sweetheart, you are the first. You're the first. What a wonderful gift to give to the person you're, you're marrying. So chastity has its own rewards. But what if by being chaste and being pure, you... Um, receive the reputation, the public reputation of being a rapist, then would you be pure? Isn't that ironic? That the reward for Joseph of being pure and refusing this powerful woman who could radically influence his future, he received the public condemnation and conviction of being a racist. Amazing. Amazing. So he loses his family, he loses his country, he loses his freedom, he loses his reputation, and then he, he loses his freedom in a second way. He's already lost his freedom as a slave. Now he loses his freedom again as a prisoner. Just down, 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 down for Joseph. Do you know what faith is? Faith is belief tested by time and disappointment. That's what faith is. I know that, um, the, um, that you're familiar with the story. Uh, Joseph rose to the top in, in Potiphar's household, and then he rose to the top in the prison. By the way, I believe that Potiphar knew his wife was lying. It says that when she reported that, that that slave you brought into my house, our house, tried to rape me, I think if he had believed her story, that Joseph would have been summarily executed. Um, it says he was angry, but it doesn't say what he was angry at. And he, he, he had to, to keep peace in the home. He couldn't let everybody know, you know, my wife is a nymphomaniac, and this is, she's lying about this boy, so we're keeping him right here in his former position. No, he's got to do something, even for the sake of his own reputation. But I don't think that the warden of the prison would have promoted Joseph over all the other prisoners if, if, Pot if he knew that would enrage Potiphar. You know, I didn't imprison this boy who tried to rape my wife for you to exalt him and promote him. I think... I think Potiphar knew. I think he told the warden of the prison, 
uh, you take care of this boy, he'll take care of you. He, he's going to make things a lot better just because he's in this prison house. Just watch. And that's what happened. And you know the story about the two servants of Pharaoh. King James says the butler and the baker, maybe the wine steward or the cupbearer and the, the head chef. They offend Pharaoh. They're thrown into prison. Now, what follows, and I did teach you this thing before. <laughs> I know this sounds a little bit exaggerated. I think, I think what, the verse I'm about to read, to me, is the most astonishing verse in the Old Testament. And it's also one of the most significant, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, when you get to chapter 40, verse 7, so what happens is these two men are thrown into prison. Joseph is given some sort of charge over them. And after a period of time, he notices that they're sad. And it says that in verse 6, this is Genesis 40, verse 6, Joseph came to them in the morning. He looked at them, and he saw that they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the house, saying, Why are your faces so sad today? Let me tell you why I think that's important. I would argue that that is the birth of pastoral ministry in the Bible. It may be the birth of pastoral ministry in the history of the world. At a minimum, it's the birth of prison ministry. Nobody could argue with that. I would, I would claim also that it's the birth of pastoral ministry. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to study faces. He's supposed to make emotional and spiritual diagnoses because he's been alert and observant. And then, he's, and then he, he's supposed to probe and try to do something about it, do something to improve things. That's exactly what Joseph does. You know what else? It's the birth of missions because he's a foreigner. And he's going to witness to nationals. He's going to tell them about the one true God, the God of Israel, the God that they don't know. He's going to tell them what God can do for them. So we have the confluence of these three great spiritual dynamics in one verse, the birth of pastoral care, the birth of missions, and the birth of prison ministry. Think about that in one verse in the first book of the Bible. But that's not all. Actually, the verse that I said was astonishing, I think the most astonishing verse in the Old Testament is, is the next verse. Because look what happens. They said to him, well, we're sad because we've dreamed a dream. We don't know what it means. Now listen to this. So Joseph pipes up and says, well, don't interpretations belong to God? God can interpret your dream. Tell me about it. Maybe I can help. Prison is full of people who are bitter. Prison is full of people who think this isn't fair. I got a raw deal. Prison is full of people who are consumed with their own unhappiness. Joseph really did get a raw deal. Joseph really was there unfairly. Joseph did the right thing and he was punished for it. Uh, Joseph was accused of just the opposite of the character that he really possessed. And he's in there concerned about the welfare for others, of others. 
their happiness. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. Here's why it's an astonishing thing. So he's convinced that God can interpret their dream. Where did he get that confidence? He didn't get it from the Bible. There wasn't a Bible. He didn't get it from a rabbi. There weren't any rabbis. He didn't get it at the synagogue or at the tabernacle or at the temple. There weren't synagogues. There was not a tabernacle yet. Well, there was not a temple yet. But most of all, and this is the thing that's so critical for us, he didn't get it from his own experience. To this point in his life, God's interpretation of Joseph's dream had been exactly the opposite of Joseph's experience. God had interpreted Joseph's dreams to mean that Joseph would be exalted over his brothers, his brothers would be looking up to him, and so far in his life, Joseph had lost everything. Far from being exalted, he'd been degraded and debased, and 100% of his experience were that his brothers were looking down at him, and he was looking up from the pit at his brothers. Just the opposite of what God had promised. Well, how could it be confident? Because he believed that God's word was more true and more determinative of reality than his experience. He's not yet 30 years old. He's been a slave since he was a teenager. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Then he's forgotten. He gives a true interpretation of the dream of the two men. One will be restored to his former place of prominence. The other will be hung, executed. And then he's forgotten. But one day Pharaoh has a dream. Two years later, and the wine steward remembers, well, there is that boy down there that I met in prison, and he sure did interpret our two dreams accurately. Maybe he can help Pharaoh. So the man screws up his courage. He doesn't want to say anything because to say something, he's got to remind Pharaoh that Pharaoh was once really offended at him. And he's kind of hoping that's, that whole thing has been forgotten. He's also got to admit that, that he forgot the boy. But in the providence of God... Uh, the wine steward comes forward because evidently the whole palace knows, maybe the whole kingdom knows, that um, Pharaoh is very, very troubled by this dream. We're now in chapter 41. And so uh, the wine steward says to Pharaoh, I think I know somebody who can help. Joseph is cleaned up, brought out of prison. You know about the two dreams. You know about the prophecies about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And you know that Pharaoh was so impressed with the interpretation that he gives 
Joseph the second place in the kingdom. In chapter 42, the famine, this is now uh, probably eight years later, the famine reaches Canaan, where Joseph's family is. And Jacob says to his sons, and this is almost literally what he says, this is uh, Genesis 42, 1, he says, why do you stand there looking at each other? Why don't you go find us some food? I've heard there's food in Egypt. Get yourselves down there and bring it back. So they go to Egypt. Now, there's no doubt that Joseph told those who were uh, under his authority, oh, we're going to get petitions from all around. When we get a petition from Canaan, I want to interview those supplicants. When somebody applies for grain from Canaan, let me talk to them. Joseph anticipates what's about to happen, and in his appearance is so changed. He now looks like an Egyptian king. It's now uh, years later. As a matter of fact, it's 13 years since he's seen his brothers, and his aspect has changed. And in that disguise, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, and he speaks to them through an interpreter, and he treats them rough. Now, I told you a moment ago that there are some very fine teachers who believe that Joseph was wrong in the way he communicated the dream. There are a lot of good Bible teachers who believe that Joseph was wrong in the way he deceived his brothers. Let me tell you, Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. You say, but he lied. Well, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Um, in June... Leading up to June 6, 1944, the Allied High Command did everything in their power, everything in their power to make the Germans believe they were going to land at Calais. Calais was the shortest distance between the English coast and the continent of Europe. They did everything they could to make Hitler think that's where they're going to land. They were never going to land there. They were going to land in Normandy. It was an unlikely place because they had high cliffs. Um, let me ask you a question. Did um, General Eisenhower and General Marshall and President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, did they owe Hitler an apology because they deceived him? If Steph Curry's uh, racing down the court dribbling the ball, if, jo if John Morant is going down the court really hard to the right side and then he dribbles the ball behind his back and he flips it up with that great left-handed flip that he's, he's so good at off the backboard, does he owe the defender an apology because he pretended he was going to go to the right, but he dribbled behind his back and go to the left? Is he supposed to apologize? Has he sinned? By the way, sport is a metaphor for war. We'll talk about that one day. Uh, Joseph's brothers were at war with him. They were at war with him. How is he supposed to know they were telling him the truth? They were liars. As a matter of fact, I should have found the verse. There's comedy in the Bible. And it, in one exchange, the brothers say to Joseph, we are honest men. Boy, that's hilarious. They'd been lying to their father for 13 years. Joseph was at war. What he did was not only permissible, it was brilliant. And it was godly. And we'll see that. We'll see that in just a moment. 
Well, I got to get to the application, so I'm going to rush past the end of the story. You know the story. This is a very familiar story. Go back and read it if you want to. I read 37 through 45, and you know about how Joseph forces them to get um, to bring Benjamin back by holding first holding Simeon hostage, and then holding the food hostage. Uh, you also know that when the men started back, they were shocked to find that that there was that their money had been returned to them in their sacks. By the way, um, that's another way that Joseph was like Jesus. You see, here's a way he's like Jesus. His plan of salvation, now of course it was a physical plan of salvation, not a spiritual plan. It was a plan to keep everybody from starving to death. Joseph's plan of salvation was believed on by the Gentiles before it was believed on by the Jews. See the way that's worked out? Also, you could only get the bread from Joseph. We can only get the salvation through Jesus. Um, but here's the other thing. You can't pay for it. You can't pay for it. You try to pay for it, but you can't pay for it. You see, you see the way he deals with them? He doesn't let them pay for it. And that spooks them. It terrifies them. But the salvation he offered his brothers, at least, was free. So I'm going to get to the climax here, and then I'm going to make the application, because I've justified teaching you about Joseph again, because I didn't make application last time. And I want to get to the application. Um, he sends the silver cup and Benjamin's sack. Everybody think that thinks that means that Benjamin was especially condemned. No, Benjamin was especially loved, but he didn't realize it. And so they come back, and when they come back, here's what happens. In chapter 44, beginning in verse 29, when Joseph says you know, that he's going to keep Benjamin, Judah comes forward, and he, and he says two or three things. He says, if we don't bring Benjamin back, that's going to kill our father. And I would beg you to let me stay here and be your slave so that that boy can go home and comfort his father. Now, when that happened, Joseph started to sob, so he had to leave the room so they wouldn't see him crying. Do you realize what that means? It means that the ordeal that Joseph took his brother's through to learn the truth, not only redeemed them, but it turned Judah into a redeemer. What do I mean by that? 20 years earlier, uh, well, 15 years earlier, Judah was perfectly willing for a son of Rachel to be a slave in Egypt for the rest of his life. He was perfectly willing for his father to die with a broken heart because he'd lost his son, Joseph. Perfectly willing. Didn't bother him at all. Now, he is not willing for a son of Rachel to remain as a servant in Egypt. He is not willing for his father to be hurt. 
He is willing to become a slave in Egypt himself, to never see his family again, in order to avoid that, to avoid that uh, agony for his father and his little brother. You see what's happened. And by the way, you ever ask yourself the question, why is the tribe of Judah that was chosen to be the royal line, or and why Jesus came through the uh, tribe of Judah since Joseph was so much more exalted in character than, than Judah? Well, let me say first, there doesn't need to be a, a reason for that. It can be a simple election of grace, and that's basically what it was. But I would say this. If we had to choose a reason, Joseph didn't volunteer to be a slave in Egypt. <laughs> that was forced on him by the wickedness of his brothers. Judah volunteered. That's how thorough the redemption was that Joseph's brilliant strategy worked in Judah's life. An astonishing thing. Well, after that, in chapter 45, Joseph returns to the room and says, I am Joseph. Is my father really alive? Zechariah 14 gives us the details of the return of Christ geographically and topographically. We learn in that chapter that the Lord's foot will touch down on the Mount of Olives. You do realize from Acts 1, don't you, that that's the last place Jesus' foot stood on this planet. He went up from the top of Mount of Olives. I can't prove it, but I'm expecting his foot to come back down on the exact footprint that it lifted up from. Zechariah 14 tells us that the mountain will then split in two. He will walk down the western bank of Olivet. He will cross the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He will cross the little brook Kidron. He will walk up through the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he'll walk through the, the eastern gate, the Golden Gate, which he entered on Palm Sunday. That gate's been sealed for 500 years, by the way. It'll be opened. When he enters Jerusalem, he may say something like this, I am Jesus, whom you crucified. And my Father is alive, and I'm alive as well. Okay, here's the thing, brothers. It, it's, it's not just that we be astonished at this, and it is an astonishing thing. But we have to go back to that business of how on earth could he sustain that faith after just the opposite of what God promised befell him. Now, in order to make the application, I'll do it as fast as I can, I want to refer you to 1 Corinthians 10, 11. There's a verse like 1 Corinthians 10, 11 in Romans 15, 4. But I'm, going, I'm only going to read the verse from 1 Corinthians. Paul is commenting on the Old Testament, the reason that we have the Old Testament. He says, now all these things happen to them as examples for us. They are written for us, for our instruction. We, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Think about that. Now, if that was true 2,000 years ago, think of us, because 
You know, even the New Testament wasn't finished when Paul wrote that. He was writing the New Testament to say that. And if he could say about himself and other believers who were alive at that moment that the ends of the ages had come upon them, the ends of the ages have really come upon us. Well, what does that mean? Again, what does it mean practically? What does it mean in terms of application? Well, I'm not saying this is all that it means, but this is the place I'll try to make the application. Everything that happened to everyone in the Bible belongs to us. Their experience is more important than our experience. By oral tradition, Joseph would have known that Noah had to build that ark for 120 years before anything happened. By oral tradition, Joseph would have known that a man who was too old, who was married to a wife who was too old to have a baby, had to wait 25 years after the first promise that a baby would be born. God appeared to Abram and Sarah when it was too late. So what did he do? He waited. It's very easy for us to think it's too late. Once we embrace an eternal perspective, we know that nothing is too late. I listened to a war hero, Chester was there too, speak at Harvest yesterday, a man who flew over 300 combat missions of Vietnam. He said, I'm in the fourth quarter. And then he said, you know what? I'm not only in the fourth quarter, I'm in overtime. Not only am I in overtime, I'm in probably in the second overtime. He's about 78, Roy Cash. Well, does that mean his life is about to end? His, uh, he's a believer in Jesus. That means his life is about to begin. We haven't even gotten started. We're talking eternal life, men. Eternal life. A life that never ends. He who believes in me shall never die, John 11. For the believer, death is not a terminus. It's a point of transit. And it's over quicker than an eye blink. And you're there. And you mean, is that all it was? That's all it was. There has to be an eternal perspective. And you know, what it, you know what this means? It means that Joseph's experience belongs to us. So that we as believers who receive the same mercy, who partake in the same um, grace, and who have the same faith, we can have the same confidence. And it's very likely that Cumulatively, you men in this room have had crushing disappointments. And you look back on it with regret. It may have been unrequited love. It may be ongoing. It may be a disappointment with a child. It may be something that you believe you prayed for and it didn't happen, or you think you had some assurance from God, but the, the fulfillment hasn't come yet. Well, welcome to the Joseph Club. Welcome to the experience of believers from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis. Don't say you weren't warned or shown that this is what it's like. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His wounds, his suffering, his humiliation, his death. We die with Christ. And we reign and we might suffer like Joseph, but we will reign in a manner even superior to Joseph. Pharaoh said, you come up here and sit next to me on my throne. 
When my daughter was three years old, I was getting ready to go to the church office in North Carolina. She's 43 now. Her name is Katie. She teaches at a a Christian school in a poor neighborhood in Frazier. And um, she said, Daddy, when I get to heaven, can I sit on Jesus' throne? I said, no, Katie. That's for Jesus. She, She said, not even for a little while. I said, Katie, no, don't even say that. Don't even think that. And she said, not even for a little girl. I said, Katie, stop it. This is, this is for Jesus, okay? I went to work. I got to work. My secretary had been a Christian about six months. I had baptized her. Her name was Roxanne. We called her Rocky. I told her that little story. She looked at me and she said, oh, then you must not know the Bible. And I looked at her and I said, what did you say? <laughs> she said, you must not know the Bible. I said, woman, what are you talking about? And she opened the Bible to Revelation 3.21. Now, I'd memorized Revelation 3.20 the first three months I'd become a Christian because it's the clincher verse in the four law booklet. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But somehow I'd missed the next verse. But to him, whoever comes to him, I will allow to sit down with me on my throne. So I went over the phone. I called home. My wife answered the phone. I said, let me talk to Katie. I said, hello? I said, sweetheart, I got some good news for you. Joseph's experience will be our experience if we know Jesus. One day we will sit down on a throne. Until then, faith is required. Faith tested by trial. Faith tested by disappointment. Faith tested by the the apparent unfulfillment of promises. But faith which will be rewarded. Aim for the divine accolade. You know what the divine accolade is. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And if you're crushed, take those wounds to Jesus. He's gone before, just as Joseph went before. Okay? Got it? Thanks for getting up early. See you later. Thank you, Brother Ronnie. Uh, Do we have any... Oh, I'm sorry, Brother Ronnie, before you take that off... um, you're uh, an associate pastor at Harvest Church. Uh, as, as you recall, uh, five staff members of uh, Harvest Church were killed in a plane crash last year. Can you give us an update on... Yeah, uh, there were five people on the plane. Two of them died. Only one of them was a staff member. All, four, uh, all, of, all five of the people were members of Harvest Church. Three of them were elders. The executive pastor who had become my best friend in Memphis, I mean, I was probably his 51st best friend. He grew up here, but since I've been working there, he'd become my closest friend in Memphis. He died. 
Bill Garner, whose family owned Wendyke Country Club, and um, Steve Tucker, the pilot of the plane, who owned a saddle company. Um, he, he died. He was an elder in our church, a key elder, and um, he owned a saddle manufacturing plant in Yoakum, Texas, and he made that flight every other week. In the words of his brother, it was like walking at the end of his driveway. And then um, two other young men in their 30s were on the plane, Tyler Springer, who's 35 and unmarried, and Tyler Patterson, Mississippi State graduate, who um, was building a, a cattle farm, but he was working for the government. And um, our senior pastor's family owned a, a cattle ranch in the neighborhood. They, didn't, they don't run it, but they own it. His, his grandfather owned it. And they were going to go down there and do some work and check out some property. And so that's why five of them were in the plane. And our senior pastor, Kenan Vaughn, who's 44 years old, he walked away. But his uh, intestines were shredded. Every major artery except for his heart and brain were damaged. And he's missing about 12 inches of his colon. He's very, very fragile. His speech has been affected. He's very hesitant. Uh, I actually spent a little time with him late yesterday. He did speak to our church last Sunday for 10 minutes. Um, he brought a greeting last night at our uh, uh, volunteer appreciation night. And <clears throat> there's a chance he could be in the pulpit within a month, but then he'll be gone a long time. And it will be many months, probably at least six months, before he would be preaching on a regular basis. And the, the prognosis is good, but the damage is there, and, and we don't know uh, if he'll be diminished in, in vigor or energy or, or you know, we, we just can't predict. Uh, God knows. So, um, and by the way, I would say this. Uh, the last sermon he preached, which was on January 15th from Judges 8, when I walked out of the church, I told about five people that may have been the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. I told our operations guy, Matt Mitchell, that he said, you're the fourth person who told me, who's told me that. And I went home and I sent the link to the sermon to 30 people. I've never done that before. But in 48 hours, the sermon became prophetic because there was about a seven, and if you do listen to it, if you go online and listen to it, um, Harvest Church Memphis, uh, the second half of the sermon is much more powerful than the first half. But there's a seven or eight minute segment where he talks about suffering and he talks about how God will bring things in your life that will make you want to shake your fist at him. But he said, God will not waste one ounce of your suffering. Anyway, I'd already thought it was one of the best sermons I'd ever heard. And then all of a sudden after the crash, it became a prophetic. It took on a new significance, really astonishing. And, uh, so I, I commend it to you. Stay in your own churches. Stay loyal to your churches. But you might want to just have a listen at that, at that message. Um, okay, that's it. Pray for Harvest Church.